0: Amen. Let's open our Bibles or open your phone apps. We're gonna to move towards Judges chapter six. I know it says Judges six one through seven twenty-five. We'll only be reading about the first half. So again, Judges chapter six. You guys get to judge that seventh book of your Bible, the seventh book of the Old Testament. Read from Judges 6, verse 1 through Judges, 20, or Judges 6, 27. So 27 verses in total. Though we'll go through all of those two chapters. See, the title, if you have it like mine, is Midian Oppresses Israel. So we'll start with Judges chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them to the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel (coughs) cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I led you from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all those who pressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall, fear the, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrites, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from, out up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, And given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to them, or said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speaks to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them to him under the terebinth that presented him. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meats and the eleven cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meats and the eleven cakes. And fire sprang from the rock and consumed the flesh and the eleven cakes. But the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Beesrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bowl and the second bowl seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on on the top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants, did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the man of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Let us pray. Well, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have spoken us to us through your son and in many times and in many ways. May the gospel of your son be proclaimed. Let us rest in the gospel. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So in 2018, Times Magazine profiled who's likely to be the most celebrated U.S. soldier from World War I, Alvin York. But prior to enlisting, he wrote these words on his draft registration card in an answer to an exemption from the draft. He said, yes don't want to fight. When asked to join the ranks, he claimed he couldn't kill a soul based on moral grounds. But the military denied his request. So he reluctantly entered on November 14, 1917, in the 82nd Infantry Division. So he grappled with pacifism until his officers convinced him that the only way to keep peace was to eradicate evil. It took months. Alvin was ostracized, mocked, and ridiculed. But what happened on October 8th of 1918 changed both York and those around him. He witnessed death and destruction of several in his unit and saw that he must fight to prevent further bloodshed among his fellow soldiers. He charged up a hill against machine gunfire, faced 19 soldiers by himself, another wave of enemy soldiers, wounding several in his unit, but eventual surrender of their lieutenant, who ordered his soldiers to stand down to Alvin, one single soldier. York himself marched 132 prisoners back without a scratch in his body. He was awarded the Medal of Honor the very next year. The least likely person to receive this, receive the Medal of Honor. So what Alvin York was to the lore of World War I history, whether or not we've heard him before, Gideon is kind of to the Old Testament. In Judges in particular, he's the most reluctant deliverer, pointing us towards Another. But before we move to Gideon, we can quickly situate ourselves. In Judges 4 to 5, a couple weeks ago, we saw with Deborah and Barak a prophecy, an unlikely deliverer, and a strong extolling of the deliverance of Israel out of Canaanite hands, continuing the line of the seed of promise. And so here with Gideon, you actually get the story of Deborah and Barak on a national scale, on a wider scale. And we'll trace this through the continuing narrative of judges. Finding the preservation of the promised seed in Genesis 3 through this humble deliverer from humble roots, the one we don't expect through Gideon. So see this as you see in your outline. You'll see this first from the raising from humility from verses 1 through 24. You'll see the raising with a Z, of Baal, so this raising of false worship. Then you'll see the magnification of God, the dumbing down of these warriors for the extolling of God. This is from verses 33 to 7:18. And lastly, strangely, the magnification of man. Verses 19 through 25, pointing us towards who Gideon really is. And so in Judges 6-7, to you catch a glimpse of a humble deliverer, an unlikely deliverer, who shows glimpses of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, and kind of looks like David. So after the serpent-crushing work of Jael, the battles under Barak, who's raised up next? This brings to our first point the raising of Gideon. Raising from this humility. Immediately after the song of Deborah and Barak and Barak in 531, what do we read in verse 1? Did the Israelites figure it out? Oh, we've been saved again. We've been delivered once again. We can trust our Lord again. No. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them to the hand of Midian seven years. Another deliverer is needed. And you start to get the sense that this process might never end. They need a perfect deliverer. We also wonder, too, and we also wonder of this of ourselves. Will this obedience ever be learned? After these delivers, are we going to learn our lesson? In verses 2 through 5, we get a similar report of the Lord handing the Israelites over to the oppressor. But what is this flip? Precisely what the Israelites are supposed to be doing to Canaan. They're supposed to be putting them under subjection. Now who is subjecting who? It also sounds really similar to what Samson does to the Philistines in chapter 15 when he destroys the fields during the time of Philistine harvest. So instead of Israel waging war against the Canaanite nations, who is waging war against who? This script has been flipped. They're supposed to be taking over this land. Now they're being taken over. Who will come and save them? So the Israelites are backed into this corner. They're back to the dens, the caves, and the strongholds. And they're persistently obedient. Will this ever end? And in verse 6, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. The people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And you think by now the Lord's like, I think you should know what you should be doing. I'm going to leave you alone. Figure this out on your own. You can do it. You already know what I'm going to tell you. But no, he actually he comes. He sends the messenger. Yet in verse 7, the Lord, like I said, is faithful. He doesn't respond in the book of Judges how either we would respond or how you would expect him to respond. To a consistently disobedient people like ourselves. He comes to the rescue yet again. In verses 8-9, to he brings to their attention once again their deliverance from Egypt. The Exodus. This is two generations before those in Judges. It's likely their grandparents are telling them stories about the Exodus. They know what the Lord can do. They've heard it. Some of them might have seen this. And that they consistently, like we heard this morning, they're the kind of practical atheists. Are you really sure you can do this for us again? The Lord's reminding them that He is their faithful Lord, He is our faithful Lord, even though we are faithless. And notice in verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet, kind of linking this narrative back to Deborah yet this time, as we'll see, the Lord actually raises the deliverer. And this actually begins the longest and the most formally constructed culinary, if you can kind of think of it, as the advent of Gideon. So something big is brewing. In verse 10, he brings the indictments he brought against Israel that we saw in Judges chapter 2. Verses 11 through 16 bring in Gideon and his interaction with the messenger of the Lord. So Gideon's is this, this wheat beater and a wine press. Is that where you expect the Lord's deliverer to come through? Or from that elite warrior school down the road, bringing up these warriors who look like a warrior. Is a wheat beater and a wine press the place you look for for your next judge? Verse 12 has the messenger naming Gideon, O mighty man of valor. Again, is that what we expect for this person beating wheat in a wine presser? Mighty man of valor is an explicitly military term. Calling him, you are the best at what you do. It's almost ironic. It's almost as if the Lord is calling him this to make him this. Not because he is. And then nearly an identical formula to Isaiah seven fourteen, Emmanuel, I will be with you. That is why Gideon is the mighty man of valor, not because he himself. And like I said, this is an explicitly military term. It's almost like the Lord is saying, By me being with you, you are this. You will deliver my people. But then Gideon, what does he do? Right after being called the mighty man of valor, does he accept it and say, let's do it? He actually blames the Lord right after being called the mighty man of valor. He blames the Lord for what? For the calamity against Israel. When clearly it's Israel's fault. Israel has failed, not the Lord. Who is Gideon saying that actually failed? Saying the Lord failed. Have you not noticed this? Have you been away from us? So, Gideon's kind of an example of those of us, we know what God has done in our past. We, those who have memorized the creed, but we find our present reality chafing against what we know is true. Stories of past deliverance seem irrelevant in present chaos. Is this not true of us? Is God not faithful to us even in the craziest crises that we face? Is his power diminished by anything going on? by political strain by debates of morality and so a little story my wife was notified some of you may know in december of 2019 that she was going to lose her job the problem was we had just moved there 3 months ago and in january 2020 she secured a position in orange county what's the problem with orange county we live in san diego It's about an hour's drive in the county we just moved into. We both very seriously questioned God. We asked, why would you place us in San Diego only to put her back where we just moved from? But then, as we know, the unthinkable happens. A global pandemic wrapped the country in a frenzy. Yet, by God's sovereignty... This actually allowed her to work from home. Had she kept her original position, everybody in her original position lost their job. And she got a job in Orange County, and she kept it. And so as we were questioning ourselves later on, why do we question God's faithfulness? As he did for the Israelites, for the grandparents, he saved them through Egypt. And yet we still find ourselves questioning God. And so verse 15 brings the light's connections with actually Moses' call. So we see both backward-facing in Gideon and forward-facing in Gideon. To the call narrative in Exodus 3, what problem does Moses have? Does anybody know? Stuttering problem. Can't speak. Who does he tell the Lord? No, go talk to this guy. Tells him to go to Aaron. What does Gideon do? I'm too weak. I can't do this. I come from the least tribe. Why are you coming to me? Why are you going to the least tribe of Manasseh? The smallest and weakest tribe in Israel. He said, how can I save Israel? How can I do this? When we know, the Lord says, I will be with you. This is not Gideon, but it's the Lord. Verse 16 says this again, I will be with you. In verses 16 through 24, Gideon questions the veracity of this messenger. and the Lord's word, that he's being called to deliver Israel. So he gathers all these sacrificial elements. The messenger of God instructs him on how to properly administer the sacrifice. And in verse 21, the messenger follows through. What happens in verse 22? Does the messenger stick around? He goes up with the sacrifice. That should shock us. So Gideon understands the nature of this theophany, so God appearing probably the same thing occurring in the beginning of chapter 2. And he says for now I have seen the angel of the Lord or he can translate that messenger of the Lord face to face. Who is the only being that that's talked about to? God. And why should this be so shocking? In Exodus 33:20 it states you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord proceeds to walk behind Moses. Gideon is being given unparalleled access to this pre-incarnate vision of the physical presence, the embodiment of the Lord, whom we know as Jesus for his incarnation. And that makes verse 23 a little bit more sense. Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Gideon's freaking out. I just saw God face to face. And that's when the Lord says, I will be with you. That's what makes him the mighty man of valor. And so Gideon makes an altar. He's seen him, he's communed with him, he makes an altar. So Gideon's been called and sets up an altar to the Lord after the visit from the messenger of the Lord. This call, though, as we see throughout the book of Judges, requires that these idols be struck down. The faithful worship of the Lord be built up. So what's Gideon going to do? brings us to point two, the raising, also the destruction, of idol worship, specifically Baal and Asherah. So it's now the time for Gideon to destroy false worship, break down the idols, so that the presence of the Lord stays in their midst, as is the call for every other judge and every other prophet. Verse 25 and 26 have the Lord giving Gideon the instruction to destroy the altars of Baal and the Asherah. And if verse 27 ended before the second, set, or second part of the sentence, all would be good. Gideon has already been confirmed in his call, yet we still see he still struggles with the fear of man. He does this in secret. Verses 29 to 32 then introduce a new strain to Gideon, And his background, he looks a little like Abraham, too. Which makes his call all the more unlikely as Israel's representative and judge of pure worship. Verse 25 touches on it. When it says, pull down the altar of Baal, that your father has. Who else comes from a pagan family that we're hearing about in the morning? Abraham, what family does Gideon come from? A pagan family. Again, is this the one we expect to deliver Israel from obscurity from a pagan land? Not at all. So Gideon comes from a line of worshipers because, but these idol worshippers are, are they Canaanites? They're Israelites. He comes from Israelite's people versus Abraham, who came from Canaanites. Gideon comes from Manasseh, which is an Israelite tribe. His father is an idol worshiper. One commentator puts it, the Canaanization, you can call it the paganization of Israel, appears complete, leaving us amazed that the Lord was still interested in delivering them. And then Joash in verse 31, who's Gideon's father, and an idol worshiper that interjects between these death threats states, if he, speaking of the Lord, or speaking of those idols, is God, let him contend for himself. Because his altar has been broken down. The Lord needs no service. The idols need to be built back up. You then hear that Gideon's name is Drubal, which means let Baal, let Baal contend against him. This may need a little nuance. It might be better translated. Let Baal contend for himself. That's Gideon's given name. Dribble. That shows us what his background is. So as of right now, the altar of Baal has been smashed, as well as the Asherah. Gideon looks like he's learning faithfulness. He looks like he's learning obedience. And in some sense, in some small sense, like us, trust in the word of the Lord, even though he yet still doubts. But the Lord's not done with him. The Lord will show him to what lengths he will go in order to magnify his glory and the salvation of his people. Brings to point three, the reduction or the magnification of the Lord in the reduction of Gideon. So this battle is brewing after the destruction of pagan altars. It's the Lord on one side versus the Baals on the other side. In verse 34, we get the second reference to the Spirit of the Lord, the first being with Othniel in Judges 3, verse 10. So Gideon's being clothed for war with the spirits of the Lord, the one whom the Lord himself promised when he said, I will be with you. There he is. And this trumpet's is a battle cry for the Israelites. It's time for the Lord to show his glory and his glory alone. In verse 46 or 36 to 40, Gideon questions the hand of the Lord yet again to save through Gideon. He's been called in a way similar to Moses. He's seen the glory of the Lord face to face and destroy the altars of false worship. We have to be thinking, what else do you need? But we know this is us. As we heard this morning, right after the circumcision sign, or the sign of the covenants that Abraham has given in Genesis 15, what happens right after? What happens right after in Judges 12, after the Lord says, I will increase your seed and multiply you, What does Abraham do in Genesis 13 and in 14? Though we've been given this, we are fallen creatures, just as Gideon is. So he tests the Lord by asking for the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry. And then again, flipping it by the ground to be wet and the fleece to be dry. And what's astonishing is the Lord does it. He accepts it. He says, I will show you. Yet you are faithless. I am faithful. And this is true of us. We're just like Gideon. Not in the good way, but in all the bad ways. We know he's faithful to us. He will stay faithful to us. And as Gideon is getting ready for war, the Lord is not satisfied. He wants it to be undeniably clear who is sovereign in this situation. That when salvation comes to Israel, when they're delivered from their oppressors, it's by the Lord's hand and the Lord's hand alone. So chapter 7, verses 2 through 7, describe these measures by the Lord to cut down the army to a small remnant. First, by testing Israelite fear for going to war, which chops the army in a third. They go from 32,000 to 10,000. Then kind of this odd test for how they drink water from a nearby area of water. It's most likely to do with those Israelites who, when they go to dra- go to grab water, who does in the best position, who has the most defined position for grab, leveraging their position, how well they move in drinking the water. The Lord wants the smallest remnants, the chosen few. He wants to be undeniably certain for the Israelites. If you win, it's my glory, not yours. Then in verses 8 and 9, we get a quick preview to the battle to come. Highly reminiscent, it looks really similar to the battle of Jericho in Joshua 6. In verse 9, he promises them, I have given it into your hand, which is exactly how he begins Judges 1, I have given these lands into your hand. This victory is sure. It's already in the Lord's hands. In verses 10 to 15, they can seem entirely random at first, with a dream and interpretation cutting right between where they start the war and where they complete the war. But it's God's sovereignty all the way through. Leads Gideon to the outposts of the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the East Camp to overhear this dream. The army of Gideon is then juxtaposed to the oppressor's armies, locusts in abundance. It's meant to press further into, look how small you are, what I'm going to do with you. Look how vast this army you're going against. And though ah, the interpretation of cake of barley and tents, they're given to us an interpretation. Verse 14, for the hand of the Lord has given Gideon the war. And then Gideon worships after hearing the dream. Verse 16 then brings us back to the company of Gideon with trumpets and empty jars and torches. Torches, that is the same word used in Genesis 15 for the torch passing through the midst of the two cut halves. So the next time it's used after Genesis 15 is right here. For the Lord passing through the severed halves in a covenant with Abraham. Also, Exodus 20, immediately following the Ten Commandments. Job, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Nahum, and Zechariah all use this term explicitly and only for the presence of the Lord. So when he's bringing these torches, he's bringing the Lord with him. Again, fulfilling what the Lord told him, I will be with you. Torches and the Spirit of the Lord upon him. It doesn't matter how big the size of his army is. He has the Lord. Verse 18 should bring to mind Joshua 6 again, the scene of Jericho, We yet with a, a minor variation, which is significant. What does it say in verse 18? For the Lord and for Gideon. Verses when Joshua shouts, shout for the Lord has given you this city. It's both a sign of Gideon's confidence that the Lord assures victory, but it's also foreshadowing what's about to happen in Judges 8. So Gideon's reluctantly called, though constantly test, the Lord's word that he will deliver Israel through his hand and has now gone to battle. Will he devote the area to the Lord as he's mandated to do and finally deliver the Israelites from their oppressors. Leading to the last point, the magnification of man. Very similarly to the scene of Jericho in Joshua 6, Gideon sets the Midianites crazy with the banging of jars and blowing trumpets. Exactly what they did in Joshua 6 by Jericho. Verse 22 then states, The Lord sets every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. Notice what he doesn't say. Gideon's sword. Gideon's army. This is the Lord's battle. Gideon is being used as the one the Lord gains victory over the Baals. But, what happens in verses 23... 25 it kind of switches it provides a little bit of color to Gideon's battle that the Lord had not commanded Gideon to do so what happens at the beginning he asked for those 32,000 to be cut down to those 300 but what happens here beginning in verse 23. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and Asher and from all of Manasseh, which is precisely where they came from. Those are the ones he put out. So instead of operating by faith, seeking the guidance of the Lord, he's not going against it. The Lord told him, reduce your army." He's bringing them all right back. So the spirit of the Lord, which vested Gideon to win this battle by the Lord's hand to magnify his glory. The messenger of the Lord prophesied in chapter six. It seems to have left Gideon at this point. This is not what the Lord commanded Gideon to do. He's calling in reinforcements. But what did the Lord say in verse 2? The people with you are too many to give the Midianites into your hand. Lest Israel, and we can say Gideon, boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. Gideon is changing the Lord's words. Where else have we seen that in the Bible? We see this in Genesis 3 and all over the place. This is what Eve does. She changes the words of the Lord. Gideon's now changing the words of the Lord. You ask me to do this, I think I'm going to do something else. He's looking a little less like the faithful deliverer and disobeying the words of the Lord. So he doubts the word of the Lord, though he's seeing miracles of the Lord. His sovereign control of the universe in raining down dew from the heavens, drenching the fleece and the earth in two separate events. The Spirit of the Lord is with them. He was to obey and faithfully deliver the Israelites. Yet it looks like Gideon is starting to take control for himself saying, I can do this. I got this figured out. So we see a striking similarity to Moses in his humble beginning. Wrestles with the call, as Moses did. He actually comes from a relatively similar place as David, too. David being that shepherd, Gideon being that wheat presser in the wine area. We see these glimpses of faith, but a reluctance to live by the word of God alone. And faithfully deliver his people and push out impurity. And we'll see this in full force in Judges 8. He looks humble and like the deliverer. Judges 8 proves that's not what he is. He's not the deliverer. And yet there's a significant quote in the book of Hebrews that calls for our attention. He, look, he looks less faithful. right? He, 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 can't, be, he can't be a god He's going against God's word. But Hebrews 11 names Gideon and calls him someone who lived by faith. So in Judges 6-7 to we see Gideon who's given the same call that Moses was. He's being set up as kind of another Moses. A big deliverer. And he fails. Yet, the preacher to the Hebrews in chapter 11 is pointing you to something more significant than Gideon's mediatorship. His faith. Chapter 11, verses 32 to 34 states, to flights. We say, hold up, we're talking about Gideon here. The guy who looks like he's not exercising any faith, but he's pointing towards the one who is faithful. It further moves on in Hebrews chapter 12. And all these, though commanded through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In Gideon, what was promised, I will be with you. The spirit that is vested in Gideon, that clothes them temporarily to magnify the glory of the Lord, is upon you. You have this spirit. And it won't be taken away. And these all, like Gideon, they pointed, they looked to Christ. As Hebrews 12 states, this great cloud of witnesses, who not only was perfectly vested with the spirits, but gave the spirits, the one that rested on Gideon without measure. It will not leave us. It will not leave us through faithlessness, through disobedience. We are made perfect by Christ and are given this spirit. If we look to Gideon and to Gideon alone, we look to him as a, an example in the faith. We're dead in our sins. His example must lead us to Christ, who did not waver, who came from obscurity, who was the humble deliverer, who did not test God, but was tested by God. in his perfect obedience under the law To his word. And Christ, unlike Gideon, proved faithful. So we place our trust in the same one that Gideon placed his trust in. Though he and we being faithless, he is faithful. So we keep this in mind as we move to chapter 8 in two weeks, because it only goes downhill from here. And this reminds us it's not the intensity of our faith. It's not how much faith we have that saves us. Because we see in Gideon, it's not much. It's the objects our faith is placed into. So let Gideon lead us to Christ. Christ being the one who is truly God with us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your Son. We thank you that he has delivered us from our sins, that we, being faithless, given the same spirits, have been shown the perfect obedience in your Son, who is with us forever, unconditionally. We thank you, and we rest in this promise. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.